As you're settled in, if you're brand new, maybe you came with a family member today because you're in town for Thanksgiving. Thanks for being with us. My name's Christian. I'm one of our pastors, and we're grateful you're here. Um, as we move into our Advent season, I just want to remind you, uh, last Sun, this is the last Sunday we'll have our Advent resources kind of available. You can purchase your own candle set for you and your family to have at home. Uh, our memory cards, there's actually a note in your bulletin with a QR code. They'll take you to a website to help you print all those out. This week's Advent memory verses are Luke 117 um, and John 14.3. You've already heard Caroline uh, give those. And maybe one of the coolest Advent resources uh, that we're offering is this devotional by Paul David Tripp. It actually starts December 1 goes every day in December, two or three pages of reading, and then some questions for your family to go through together. Um, Advent is the season that reminds us that Christmas is not a historical event in our past, and Christmas is not just a national holiday in our present. Christmas does not bring hope because of what happened. Christmas brings hope because of what is yet to happen. The prophecy candle reminds us that God said he would come, and he did, but the prophecy candle also reminds us that we can trust the promises of God. The story of Christmas is not just that Jesus came, it's that Jesus is coming again, amen? Like, what happened 2,000 years ago might impact our soul, but it doesn't feel like sometimes it impacts our life a whole lot unless it were to happen again, but Jesus promises that it will happen again. And the prophecy candle is the candle that reminds us that Advent, this Christmas season, is a season of hope. I want to read from Paul David Tripp today on December 19th of his devotional because he talks about the subject of hope. It'll be on the screen behind me. He says this, because we are made in God's image, we are hardwired for hope. That is the title of our Bible study today. You and I are always putting our hope in something. If you listen, you'll realize that we communicate with the language of hope all the time. I sure hope it doesn't rain today. I hope she isn't mad. I hope I can do what I promised. I hope they win the championship. I hope they catch the passes. That, was, that, wasn't, that wasn't in there. I made that one up on my own. I hope they get along for once. I hope this sickness isn't something serious. I hope when I get home, there will be something to eat. I hope I can do something worthwhile with my life. I hope what I've believed proves to be true. I am persuaded that the language of hope is on our lips so much because we live in a world where hope seems temporary or is often dashed. In fact, we get to the place where we're afraid to hope anymore at all because we're sure we'll be disappointed once again. We are hardwired for hope and the Advent season begins with telling us to have hope. I was scrolling on my TV this week between football games, and there was a, an ad that came up for holiday movies um, that I could click on and buy uh, through my television. And one of the first ones that popped up was a movie called Four Christmases with Vince Vaughn um, and Reese Witherspoon. I haven't seen it in a long time. I just remember there's an epic scene of Vince Vaughn acting in like a passion play at a church. I'm not telling you you should watch it or not. I don't know if a senior pastor, if I should recommend the movie, but that is a really, really funny scene. But when I saw that phrase, Four Christmases, I, I chuckled to myself because as I've gotten ready for today's message, I realized there's really only two Christmases in the Bible. There are four gospel books in the New Testament, uh, stories that give the life and the ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but only two of the four give us Christmas. There's only two Christmases in the Bible. Mark does not mention Christmas. John does not mention Christmas. Matthew and John both start their books with the birth of Jesus that we celebrate as Christmas, but they approach it from different directions. Uh, Matthew begins the Christmas story by telling us that Jesus came into the world. Luke, who was a historian, 
begins his gospel story by telling us the world that Jesus came into. Let me say it again. Matthew begins his gospel story by telling us about Jesus coming into the world. Luke begins his gospel story by telling us about the world that Jesus came into. And as a historian, he wanted us to know that while Advent is a season that we celebrate hope, the first Christmas, if you're taking notes today uh, from the notes in your bulletin, number one was really kind of in a hopeless circumstance. Uh, Luke, kind of like Charles Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities, begins his Christmas story by saying Christmas was the best of times, but it came in the worst of times. And as we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and if you don't have a Bible today, everything I read will be on the screen, so it'll be easy to follow along. We're going to hear Luke tell us that we need to understand the backdrop, the setting of the Christmas story, so that we can understand why it offers so much hope. And what you need to know is, as we look at the backdrop of Christmas 2,000 years ago, man, it looks a whole lot like 2023 to me. So here's what Luke says as he gives us this hopeless circumstance that Christmas stepped into. In verses 5 through 7, he says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. You need to understand Luke's Christmas story begins with the darkness of the reality of broken people living in a broken world. Before he's singing Christmas carols, before there's angels or shepherds or wise men or even Jesus, there's just broken people living in this broken world. Luke presents us with a very, very dark picture of where Christmas will happen. And it's interesting that this is still the way Christmas begins, like in our world and in our culture. As a matter of fact, if we were to blindfold you and spin you around 10 times and put you in an undisclosed location where you lost track of time and you didn't know what day it was, what night it was, what week it was, what month it was, and then we dropped you in the middle of our community in December, not knowing it was December, and it was a nice day that felt like either spring or fall, you would know it was Christmas because as you looked around, you'd see what? Anyway, it lights. It's interesting that attacking the darkness illuminating the darkness is still the first sign that Christmas is coming in our community. There's something about pushing back and into the darkness that lets you know Christmas is around the corner. Now, Psalm 139.12 says that the darkness is not dark to God. And Daniel 2.22 says God knows what lies in the darkness. In John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world that pushes and exposes, pushes out into and exposes darkness. But Luke starts his story, and he looks around at the world he's living in. He's like, man, it's dark. He gives us what I would call three really hopeless circumstances. He begins by telling us that Herod is the king in Judea this first Christmas. Herod, a non-Jewish, wicked, and ruthless puppet king of the region of Judea, who was declared the king of the Jews by Rome, but not by Israel or Israel's God, Israel had been set up in history to be a theocracy. They were a nation who was supposed to serve God, honor God. And the one distinguishing trait of the king of Israel was that he would have a heart after God. That's what made the king of Israel successful, that he loved God, followed God, trusted God, prayed to God, was engaged in a relationship with God. This guy was not, which means the Jews of Luke's days would have looked to the nation of Israel for hope 
And they would have seen he was le- who was leading the government, and they would have said, okay, our nation and our government, while we would like them to provide us hope, really don't give us an ounce of hope. As a matter of fact, when I look towards the nation and the government, this 2,000 years ago, I'm not speaking first person, it just could also be true. When I look at our nation and government, it actually leaves me hopeless, not hopeful. That's the world that Jesus came into that Luke is preparing us to learn about. He teaches us about a couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were childless. This would have been seen as a cultural curse of God withholding his gifts from his children. In Genesis 33 and twice in Psalms, we see that children are not only a gift from God, but they are a heritage of the Lord. And in this culture, good people receive good gifts from God. So to not have children would not just be a sad thing for a couple, it would be a bad thing for a couple because the outside world would look and say, you are not receiving good things from God because God does not think you're good. You're deserving. God does not think you're worthy. So like... Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth may have wanted, like so many of you, to put their hope in having the perfect family that they always wanted, but it simply was not to be. And many of you this week had, I don't want to say it was a hopeless Thanksgiving week, but it may not have been a hope-filled Thanksgiving week because you, like them, may have placed your hope in a picture of a family that's not your reality right now in life. Family members missing for one reason or another, or family members who have passed on who will never be there again. What should be hope-filled time with family becomes a little bit of a hopeless circumstance. Zechariah and Elizabeth, if their hope was based in their family, certainly would have been hopeless. They had no children, and Luke lets us know, and they were both very old, which means he saw this as the finality of their reality. They were not having a bad day. They were having a bad life. He was saying they didn't have any children, and they weren't going to have any children because they're too old to even start trying now. He was saying not only can their family not offer them hope, their circumstances are broken beyond hope. What's interesting is as we look at the 2023 Christmas that's coming in the next few weeks, some of you in this room, some watching online, literally have the exact same story. It's not similar. It is identical to Luke chapter 1. At some point in 2020, for one reason or another, the shape of your heart attached itself to hope being found in the nation and who was leading the nation. And when your guy lost, you've been without hope for three years. And if you were to be honest, all your hopes now ride on November of 2024. And you may or may not experience hope if the nation and the guy leading it go the way you hope that it will go. At the exact same time, some of you are in here and more than anything, you were hoping 2023 was the year that you would finally get pregnant as a couple And the year has come and gone again, and that has not happened, and hope is beginning to fade that maybe it never will happen. And some of you, you just expected to be living in different circumstances between Thanksgiving and Christmas of this year than you were last year, and it's been 12 months and nothing has changed. Some of you, your story is identical to Zechariah and Elizabeth. All of us, our stories are similar. If and when we look for hope any place other than Jesus, we will always be disappointed. What's interesting, if, uh, if as you're getting ready to send out your Christmas cards this year, you were to Google um, Christmas Bible verses because you wanted to put a verse on your card that made it seem a little more spiritual than just holiday-ish this year, one of the first few verses that would pop up would be from the book of Isaiah because Isaiah was the prophet 700 years before Jesus. It's known as one of the messianic prophets. He said lots of things about Jesus, very specifically about Jesus being born. And in one of his most famous prophecies, he points out what Luke is talking about, but leads us to ask a question. In Isaiah 9-2, Isaiah says, The people 
walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Did any of you ever uh, participate in the spelling bee when you were in elementary school? Any spelling bee people, any spelling bee champs in the room? So I was taught a delay tactic. When I participated in a spelling bee, they knew I was one of the guys who wouldn't be able to spell the words right off the bat. So they taught me how to um, delay spelling the word by helping me understand I could ask two questions of the person who'd given me the word. The first question was this, Christian, spell this word. It's like, oh, I don't think I know how to spell that word. Um, Could you use it in a... Yeah, so that's one of the delay tactics. Ask someone to like, say it in a sentence as if that will help you learn to spell the word at all. It actually doesn't help at all. It just delays the inevitable, letting everyone know you don't know how to spell the word. If you get to the end of the sentence and you're like, yeah, I still got no clue, then you could ask them um, to give you a what of the word. Definition. Yeah, give me a definition. Because if you help me understand what it means, I still actually won't know how to spell it. But that'll give me a little more time before I have to spell it. Um, if I was in like spelling bee Isaiah 9-2, Isaiah reads... Isaiah 9-2 to me. Um, I would say, uh, question, could you define for me what deep darkness means? Because you said people living in darkness have moved to living in deep darkness. And I'm pretty sure I don't want to move in that direction. So could you either use in a sentence or define for me how you move from darkness to deep darkness? Because I would like to not do that if that's possible. And Isaiah sitting behind his spelling bee table would say, Sure, let me explain deep darkness to you. And he would go to Isaiah 8, 19, just a few verses before, and he would explain deep darkness this way. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, let's stop right there. When someone tells you where to find spiritual truth, but it's not God, shouldn't you, like, shouldn't you ask God those questions? When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, Should not people be like looking to God for those things? No, they don't. Verse 21 says, distressed and hungry, they roam through the land. And when they're famished, they become enraged. And looking upward, they curse their king and their God. Then they look toward the earth and they see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness or deeper darkness. Isaiah says, when a people living in darkness... Choose not to look to God for light and instead think they can find light on earth. It just leads them into deeper darkness. When people in darkness are like, I need hope, and you're like, look to God, and you're like, I don't need God. I'm gonna find it at my job. I'm gonna find it at my family. I'm gonna find it in the election. I'm gonna find it in my health. I'm gonna find it in the economy. I don't need God. I'm gonna find it on earth. He said, those people are gonna move from darkness to deeper darkness. Because when you look around for hope rather than up for hope, you have gone from bad to worse. Zechariah knew this. Luke introduces us to this guy who's living in a land of deep darkness. And he's not looking around for hope because he's not going to find it in the nation and he's not going to find it in his family. He's not going to find it in his circumstances. He's not looking around for hope. He's looking up for hope because the story of Christmas is that hope comes to us, not from us. So he's not expecting to find it on earth in anything the earth offers. 
He's praying that God will send him hope, and he's doing this through what I call hopeful practices in verses 8 through 10. So Luke's like, so hopeless circumstance, yet there's these people living in hope spiritually. And here's what they're doing. Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Let me, let me pause for a minute because this is the point in the message where if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, a little bit about Judaism, a little about, about Hebrew worship where this makes a whole lot more sense to you, what we're going to find is the practices of Jewish religion reminded those awaiting Messiah of their past, their prophecies, and their promises. So it looks like people were living in, in darkness. And some were looking around in the world trying to find hope, and they were in deeper darkness. But then there were some people looking up, not around. And they had these practices that helped them hold on to hope because they'd seen it in their past, and they'd been promised it for their future. And Zachariah was one of those guys. Now, back to elementary school. Did any of you do show and tell or have show and tell as a part of like your, anybody familiar with show and tell? So we're going to flip that, and we're going to do tell and show. Um, I'm gonna gonna tell you what you need to understand about Hebrew worship from these three verses and I'm gonna show you a picture so you can understand how Zechariah was looking for hope in a land of deep, deep darkness. One, we learned that he was a priest. So let's just unpack some things spiritually from the Hebrew point of view. A priest was one called by God to serve as a mediator between God and his people. This, by the way, tells us how important it is to God that he live in relationship with us because this was his idea, not ours. The story of this book is that God created the heavens and the earth and everything on it and everyone in it so that he could live in relationship with him for eternity. Humanity rebelled against God. Sin broke that relationship, and God's like, we got to fix this. So as soon as it was broken, God's like, I'm going to send someone who's going to put it back together. And until that happens, there will always be somebody who represents me to people and represents people to me because it's deeply important to the God of the universe that you live in relationship with him and he live in relationship with you. So this was his thing, not our thing. We weren't saying, how do we get to God? God was saying, I need you to understand how I can live in relationship with you. He developed an entire priesthood which was the establishment of a group of people to facilitate the presence of God among the people of God through their worship. So God said, I want to give you some important rhythms every day, every week, every month, every season, every year that just serve as a reminder that I am with you. And I want to give you a place that reminds you of that. So God gave him the temple. This is where Zechariah was working that day. The physical representation of the spiritual presence of God among his people. I would say that the tabernacle of the desert-dwelling days of the Israelites and the temple of the nation-dwelling people of Israel were both representatives of a reality. And you say, what was that reality? The people of Israel asked God when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, um, like, can we make an idol? Like, can we make something that is you? Like, can we make an idol? Can we make an image? Can we make something that represents you so that we'll know you're always with us. And God, like third commandment, like, no, you're never going to make an idol. But I will give you this place of worship. And symbolically, my presence will dwell in that place of worship. Because it's important for you to know that I'm with you. And it's important for me to be with you. So because God's desire is always to be with his people, he's like, I'm going to give you a place that is a, that is a representation of the reality. And the reality is this, I'm with you. 
I'm with you. I want to be with you. I want you to know I'm with you. Um, I want you to be with me. So I'm going to give you the temple to do that. And then there were all these kind of religious rituals inside the temple that would help people remember who God was and what he was doing. One of those was burning incense. It was the practice and the picture of a connection between heaven and earth. Burning incense was a picture of humanity reaching up to a God who was reaching down. Here, here was what God wanted the people to understand when he rescued the people from Egypt and they were in the desert. Like, how will we know that God's with us all day, every day? And God's like, I'll give you a pillar of cloud that stretches from the earth to heaven by the day. You'll know that I'm there. I'll give you a pillar of fire at night. There'll never be a time where you can't look up and realize heaven and earth are connected by my presence. So God gave them kind of symbolically in the temple the uh, altar of sacrifice outside the temple that 24 hours a day would have a sacrifice on it so that there would be smoke continually ascending to heaven. It wasn't reminding the people we're going up. It reminded the people God came down. God came down. He's with us. It's okay. And then inside the building, there was this altar of incense, which uh, represented the exact same thing. When they would light the incense, it would be representative of prayers going up. And the smoke that connected heaven to the heavens to the earth would remind them God came down like God's here. That, so that, that's what you need to know about this situation but let me show you a picture of how it should have worked and exactly what Zechariah was doing. I'm going to show you a picture of Solomon's temple, which Herod's temple would have looked similar to, but not identical to. So this would have been the temple that uh, Solomon had. From the exterior, it would have been the temple in the days of Jesus. Uh, you can see kind of off to the, to the front the uh, altar of sacrifice where the priest would burn the outdoor sacrifices. And then we've kind of lifted off the roof so you can see inside the temple. You walk in and the table of showbread that represented how God fed the people with manna for 40 years is on the ride. And the menorah, uh, the you know, seven-stemmed olive, um, olive oil-fueled lamp would be on a, the, the left-hand side. And then right in front of the veil, 90 feet tall, 18 inches thick, would be the altar of incense. And it was the closest anyone on planet Earth except for the high priest could get to the Holy of Holies, which was on the other side of the veil, which, which represented the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. This is where Solomon's temple and Herod's temple looked different. The Holy of Holies and Herod's temple was empty. Was empty. Jewish history tells us at some point before the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, uh, the Israelites took the Ark and they put it someplace. Nobody knows where it is. Indiana Jones found it in Jordan at one point in the area of Petra, but when the Nazis opened it, it burned their face off. And like, since that point, nobody knows where it is. Like, literally, Jewish historians are like, no, no one knows where the ark is. They know this. In the days of Jesus in the temple of Herod, it was never there. The Holy of Holies was empty. It was an empty room. It was a reminder that the presence of God had been on earth in the ark, but it was not there. It was empty. You're like, then what is Zechariah praying? Like, what's he doing? He's standing 18 inches from what used to be the holiest place on earth because it had the presence of God, but now it's just an empty room. And he's offering incense that reminds him that God came down. You're like, so, like, is he, is he praying to a room? Is he saying thank you that God used to be there? No, not at all. He's not praying to a room. He's not praying to a reminder. He's praying for a person that God promised he would send to rescue his people that the Israeli people, the Jewish people knew as the Messiah. Hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. If you get very, very literal, 200. If you're a little more liberal in how you translate the Old Testament, 400. But either way, hundreds of prophecies saying that God would send a person known as the Messiah who would be the king and the priest 
of Israel that would not only save Israel, but would save the world and connect them to God. Zechariah is there and he's like, hope is not this room. Hope is not what used to be. Hope is a person. Number three, hope is a person who God promised to send. And I'm praying that he would send him. As he's praying, verses 11 through 17, look what happens. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even before he is born, he will bring back many to the people of Israel and to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Such a cool text of Christmas scripture. By the way, did you see the flashback? Because we've seen this before for those of us who Read the Bible a little bit. Right, a guy who was chosen by God to stand before God, to represent God to a people who for 400 years hadn't heard from God. Standing in front of a fire that's not burning up, but that is on fire, and all of a sudden a supernatural voice speaks right next to the fire. The man standing in front of it's freaked out, scared out of his mind. The supernatural voice says, don't be afraid. And the voice says, same thing. In Exodus 3 and Luke 1, I've seen my people. I know they're hurting. I've come to rescue them. Remember the flashback now? Look a little bit like Moses in Exodus chapter 3. The people of Israel, 430 years in bondage. The people of Israel, 400 years in what's known as the intertestamental dark ages. It had been 400 years since a prophet of God had spoken to the people of Israel. Now here's this man standing before a fire that didn't burn up, a supernatural voice from the fire saying, don't be afraid. I've come to fix this thing. I've come to rescue you. It's interesting as we look at hope being a person and we look at Zechariah's story, we can learn a lot about what we should think about in the Christmas story by Zechariah's name, Zechariah's son, and Zechariah's hope. First, we look at Zechariah's name. His name literally translates Yahweh has remembered. I had a seminary professor tell me there are more men in the Bible named Zechariah than any other name. It's not the name most mentioned in the Bible, but there are more different people in the Bible named Zechariah than any other different people with a different name. And it's interesting, maybe ironic, that the name that most people in the Bible were named is the theme of the entire Bible. God remembers what's going on. God remembers you. In Genesis chapter, Chapter 6, God remembered Noah and his family, and he rescued them from a violent world. In Genesis 12, God remembered Abram and his family, and he called them to be a people for himself. In Genesis 26, we're told God remembered his promise to Abraham, so he blessed Isaac. In Genesis 41, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abram, so he blessed his grandson Jacob. In Genesis 50, we're told because God had remembered his promise to Abram, he blessed his great-grandson Joseph. In Exodus chapter 2, we're told God remembered his people and knew they were hurting. And in Exodus chapter 3, he came down in a bush to Moses and said, I'm going to rescue and help them. Now in Luke chapter 1, Luke tells the exact same story to a priest named Zechariah and says, God, once again, is delivering a people in spiritual bondage. 
through a person named Jesus. Zechariah's name is literally not just the theme of the Bible, it is the theme of the story of your life. If you could kind of step outside yourself and just look back on your life, what you would see at every stop is God has remembered you, he knows where you are, and he's always there with grace and mercy to step into your story if and when you need him. Some of you are sitting in church today wondering, does anyone know what I'm going through right now? God remembers what you're going through right now. And the Christmas story says you can have hope because he steps into that. Zachariah's name is powerful. Zachariah's boy, Zachariah's son, he's important too. His name is John. We know him as John the Baptist by his kind of more formal title. Zechariah was told that he would be a supernatural sign to others. That when he was born, his life would remind people that God was real, that God remembered them, that God loved them, that God wanted to be in a relationship with him. That's the purpose of his life. We're told he would be a Nazarite from birth, which means he wouldn't cut his hair like Samson and he wouldn't drink or eat anything that came from the vine. We see several of those throughout scripture. But the purpose of a Nazarite was somebody being separated from normal life to God for the purposes of God. We're told that he would accomplish those purposes because he would be filled and fueled by the Holy Spirit to accomplish his mission. And we're told that his mission would be to point people to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now, here's what's interesting about Zechariah's son. All of God's children look like this. Now, not the first one. In case you were not aware of it, let me be the first to tell you, you are not John the Baptist. But all the ones with the three asterisks, that's you. You, as a follower of Jesus, are designed to be a sign to the world that God knows them, loves them, and has sent a Savior. It's one of the reasons God created you. You, as a follower of Jesus, have been separated from a group of people who live for themselves, and now you are among the group of people who live for God and his mission and his purpose, which, by the way, you cannot do without being filled and fueled by the Holy Spirit, which is why you got to be in the Word, which is why you got to be in prayer, which you got to be in church, which is why you got to be in some kind of spiritual community, because your mission, like Zachariah's boy's mission, is the same, to point people to Jesus because he's the Savior of the world. And I love Advent season because it is the season we get to share our hope. It's, it's odd. I don't know why it is other than maybe God has made it this way. Studies have been done that say that 8 out of 10 unchurched, non-religious people desire to go to a church service at Christmas. They think it's part of the way that you celebrate the holiday. They see everyone else doing it. And 8 out of 10 people in your life who are non-religious and don't go to church would like to go to church for a Christmas service. They think they're supposed to. Which means this is the season that we get to, like Zachariah's boy, be messengers of hope. Man, we've got, I think, seven services spread out over three or four days that we'll give you more information on as we get in December. Our goal every year at Christmas is that you don't come alone. Because if you have 10 people in your life you care about who don't know Jesus and you think Jesus would bring hope to their life, even if the first two say next, you got a great shot with the next day. First two say no, got a great shot with the next eight saying, I, was, I actually was hoping somebody would invite me to a Christmas service. I'd already picked out my outfit. I just didn't know who, where I was going to go or who I was going to sit with because I don't know how to do the religious thing. But I thought it would be fun at Christmas. Don't miss your mission. Don't miss your opportunity to point people to Jesus. Because Zechariah's name and Zechariah's boy Remind us of Zechariah's hope 
and it's what we started with today. It's hardwired into all of us. All of us are looking for something to hope in. And we believe during this Advent season that it's Jesus. Not just that he came, but that he's coming back. The fact that prophecy has been fulfilled, that God said it was going to happen and it did, means that promises can be trusted. Prophecy said Jesus is going to come as a baby, and he did. Promises of Scripture says that Jesus is going to come back to take those who are his with him, and he will. Because prophecy has been fulfilled, promises can be trusted. And here is the promise that Luke says Gabriel gave to Zechariah. Your son will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What's interesting is those words spoken to Zechariah were not original to this conversation. They are the last two verses of the Old Covenant Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And here was kind of the scenario that those verses were spoken into. We know that in 586 uh, B.C., Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq. The city of Jerusalem was torn down, burned down, the temple torn down. And for about 100 years, the people of Israel were all scattered and kind of lived in parts of Iraq and Iran. And then in around 539 B.C., the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and a king named Cyrus said, I want every person in every country to pray to their God for me in case one of them's real and their God wants to help me. So he told the Jewish people, go back to Israel, build a temple, but just make sure you use it to pray for me. And about 50,000 people came home. Um, in the first wave, a man named Zerubbabel led them, and Zerubbabel led them to build the foundations of the temple, but then they got tired and thought, we can't build the rest of the thing. So eventually, a second wave came back, motivated some, by some prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, different Zechariah, to rebuild the temple. Then a guy by the name of Nehemiah came back and built the city up because it wasn't safe to live in. Then a guy named Ezra came and taught people kind of how to do the religious rhythms again. But about 100 years after that, city of Jerusalem rebuilt, walls rebuilt, temple was up, priests were working, Nobody loved God. Just got kind of all of formality. Got our city, got our temple, doing the church thing. Nobody loves God. And it was dark. Um, the nation was broke, was weak, was constantly under threat. Families were not getting along. Children and parents had their hearts turned away from each other rather than towards each other. And every circumstance of every life was wrong. If you read the book of Malachi, Malachi keeps saying, here's why things are so wrong. Why am I working so hard and nothing good is happening? Like everything was falling apart. It was a land of darkness trending towards deep darkness. And Malachi ends the Hebrew scriptures, the 39 books of our Old Testament, by saying, it's dark, but hope is coming. Because God is gonna send his Messiah. And when Messiah gets here, He's eventually going to fix nation. He's going to eventually fix families. He's eventually going to fix circumstances. And he's going to allow you to have hope. But you have to look to him. When we look around for hope, darkness gets darker. When we look up for hope in this Advent season, we find Jesus. 
I love how Tripp closes December 19th, this day on hope in his devotional. He says, the Christmas story reminds us that hope will never be found if you look horizontally. It won't be found if you look around. True hope is only found when you look for it vertically if you look up. The Christmas story reminds us that hopelessness and broken people in the broken world, realizing that nothing around you can offer you spiritual hope, is actually the doorway to true and eternal hope because you will stop looking around and you will begin to look up. Prophecy fulfilled, Jesus came. Promises giving, he's coming again. Because the prophecy was fulfilled, the promise can be trusted. And that gives hope. So I leave you today with Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust the promises of God so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we march to the manger, we do so with hope, not just because Jesus was born, but because Jesus is coming again for all those who've been born again, not as baby Jesus, but as King Jesus. And darkness will be eliminated forever and life and light will be ours for eternity, amen? What's God said to your heart as you've reflected on hope? And what do you need to do to just kind of move your mind in this season to a place of living, living in hope and being a messenger of hope? I'm gonna pray. And then our reflection questions will scroll for a couple minutes to give you a chance to just process what you've heard and pray real specific prayers. And I'll come back and close this in prayer. But God, we thank you that you are the God of hope and we pray that your joy and your peace may be ours and may overflow in hope through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us as we meditate on what we've heard. We turn those into prayers today. In Jesus' name, amen.